Good evening, I'm Ted Koppel. Surely everyone knows by now that Buckwheat is dead. But for those of you who have not seen the videotape of Buckwheat being shot, let's take a look. Drinking untreated stream water can give you an intestinal ailment known as beaver fever. It gets its name because beaver, beaver and muskrat are the source of the parasite called Giardia. A state health official says cold weather does not guarantee safe water. David Frost says beaver fever has been found in 31 of Washington's 39 counties, even in the winter. Hmm. Typhoid fever is one disease commonly carried by water. In one city, the installation of sand filters and the practice of chlorination was followed by a marked decrease in the number of typhoid fever cases. Until today, this disease is very rare, where scientific controls are employed. Ty Webb, Heavy Longmire, Gustav Matteblanc. Is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second? This is GLK London transmitting on the short wave band on 10.4 meters at a frequency of 250 megacycles per second. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Come on then, Plato, enlighten me. Welcome back to Can You Hear Me, the podcast that's normally three guys, but this week it's just your pal, Gustav Monteblanc. Uh, Ty and Heavy weren't able to make it, and you know how I hate to miss an episode each week. And I chose this week to just go on a little bit of a rant, so if you're not a fan of the City of the Gustav episodes, check back next week. This week is going to get into uh, a little bit of science and a little bit of common sense, and I guess we'll just take it from there. I first started hearing about this raw water and live water nonsense a few months ago, just like everybody else did. It was all over the news for a little while, ranging from the New York Times to all the major TV networks. And when I heard about it, with the stories focusing mostly on California free spirits and Silicon Valley types with too much money and not enough sense, I just kind of played it off as the same sort of health fads that have emerged out of California for the last 60 years or so. And, you know, the New York Times article seemed to focus on people trespassing to get to natural springs or entrepreneurial neo-hippies that were bottling local spring water up from their own springs and selling it at exorbitant prices per gallon of this quote-unquote living water. Now, full disclosure, when I was growing up, I drank from a spring plenty of times on my grandfather's farm. It was a beautiful spot. The creek was sandy, but on one side of the creek bed, it was nothing but exposed soft slate rock, and down this little magical stair-step waterfall, the spring flowed. Now, that same area was full of all kind of old flint arrowheads and chips. Now, I like to imagine that ancient Native Americans camped near the spring and imagine what they were doing hundreds of years ago. It's a memory that I hold dear. But today, knowing what I know now, I would be hesitant to just bend down and take a big old gulp out of that spring. Now, that same area had lots of other little springs, which I wouldn't drink out of even then. They were less ideal spots, and they were ripe for runoff that would contaminate the spring from, you know, cow poo and just whatever else has fallen into them. And back then, 
I don't know what I know now about waterborne pathogens. And it was a simpler time when the Soviet missiles were all aimed at us and we were worried about greater existentialistic threats, perhaps. But that's why I wanted to give you the full disclosure. I, too, had enjoyed fresh spring water in my youth, and I wasn't too upset by this first wave of raw water, or living water, if you will, articles that I was seeing. It seemed that they were, for the most part, just a bunch of people wanting natural and non-chlorinated and non-fluorinated water. And while I don't agree with all the anti-fluorination folks, the fluorination debate's been going on since they started adding it to the U.S. water supply and has raged ever since. And even though I don't agree with it, I actually do understand their viewpoint. So when I saw a link tweeted for an article on Slate the other day, I was shocked to see the next wave of this raw water movement. I hope it's an anomaly, but I feel compelled to address it because I was literally, and I kid you not, in shock that day. I hardly ever argue with anybody on Twitter. I don't see the purpose of it, but I felt compelled to tell Slate how irresponsible this article was. But as a service to my favorite listeners, I'm going to go into detail now why I think this article is basically reckless and a public disservice. So on February 1st, Slate published an article by Ethan Link entitled, Actually, Backpackers, You Don't Need to Filter Your Stream Water. And at the end of the article, Ethan is noted as a biology PhD candidate at the University of Washington. So you would think this guy gets it. But in the article, Ethan cites several studies regarding Giardia and coliform bacteria to back up his claim that backpackers need not to filter their stream water. Now, Ethan also notes that he himself has been drinking untreated water for the last 10 years without any ill effect. Well, good for you, Ethan. Now, I'll go into detail about waterborne pathogens a little bit later. But first, I want to discuss these sources that Ethan used to back up his conclusion. Now, if you know anything about statistics in academia, you can know that you can find studies that will support just about any position that you can possibly think of, and just as many studies that will support the opposite idea. In the world of statistics, small sample sizes and limited selection criteria can lead to some very questionable conclusions, especially if they are extrapolated to a wider application. It's no different when you see polls in the cable news shows where they are extrapolating national sentiment about an issue or a candidate when they only sampled a couple of hundred people. That's how academic studies work, too. The first article that Ethan cites is titled Cyst Acquisition Rate for Giardia Lamblia in Backcountry Travelers to Desolation Wilderness, Lake Tahoe. And that's by one uh, Dr. Zell and Mr. Sorensen. Now, that's a study that was carried out over a three-year period where people who applied for an overnight camping permit for the Desolation Wilderness Lake Tahoe area, were given a brochure asking them to return a mailer and thus be enrolled in the study. They would then be sent a stool sample kit and have an ova and parasite exam performed on their stool to determine if they were infected with Giardia lamblia cyst. The study also did spot checks of several popular water spots in the Desolation Wilderness area. Now, after three years, and after excluding participants who didn't meet their selection criteria, the study had a whopping sample size of, get ready, 41 participants. And they had spot-checked three sample sites on 10 separate occasions. So this sample is 41 patients and 30 samples of water from directly from the sources. Now, of these 41 participants, the study determined 
that 5.7% had Giardia cysts in their stool. And as I mentioned, I'll discuss Giardia later on, and we can get into what that means to actually have the cysts. Now, the 30 water samples ranged anywhere from 0 cysts per 100 gallons up to 25 cysts per 100 gallons, with a mean for each sample site being respectively 4.8, 2.0, and 3.5 cysts per gallon. The study's intent was to show that physicians who jumped the gun to use anti-giardia medication for any diarrhea malady that their patients might be suffering if they were backcountry campers was statistically unfounded and a poor utilization of treatment. The study also found that only 20% of the participants did not treat their water, and 167 of the participants had some sort of gastrointestinal illness during or after the trip. And they noted that these gastrointestinal illnesses also occurred in both folks that treated and didn't treat their water. Again, this is a self-reporting study with the exception of the actual stool sample. So in the questionnaire, the patient, or participant if you will, gave them the information to answer their questionnaire if they'd had any diarrhea, if they'd had any cramping, any vomiting. Participants can't always be trusted, especially after the fact, to give you exact answers. So there's always a little bit of question when it comes to these surveys. The study's conclusion was, and I quote, Our experience suggests that Giardia lamblia infection may not be the sole agent responsible for producing gastrointestinal illness in backcountry travelers. With a heightened public awareness of giardiasis, physicians often tend to attribute waterborne illness to this parasite following a remote wilderness trip. One must recognize that gastrointestinal illness following backcountry travel may result from other etiologic agents that are of a self-limited nature, requiring supportive care only. Specific pharmacologic therapy for Giardia lamblia should be reserved for established cases of infection. And by doing so and reporting such instances to local health authorities, physicians can help to bridge the gap between anecdotal and fact regarding the impact of the parasite upon the health of backcountry enthusiasts. So this study is not saying that you shouldn't treat your water. Treating your water is sort of like wearing a seatbelt. And how many times have you gotten in your vehicle and driven safely from point A to point B. Based on this study, out of the 41 of you listening to this episode, 5.7% of you would percent of you would have gotten into an accident today. Again, they're not saying not to treat your water. They're just saying Giardia may not be the culprit. And we shouldn't just go around treating people with flagell at the first drop of a hat until we've proven, via stool sample, the patient actually has Giardia in the stool. The next study that Ethan cited uses data for 1991 collected from 48 state health departments, specifically about reported Giardia infections. It was titled, Giardiasis as a Threat to Backpackers in the United States, a Survey of State Health Departments, by Thomas Welch and Timothy Welch. And it appeared in the Wilderness Environmental Medicine Journal in 1995. Again, this study is laser-focused on only on Giardia, not the other waterborne pathogens. And the sample size was much larger in this study, with 34,348 cases reported to the state health departments. Now, not all 48 states that responded handled the reporting in the same manner. Of the 34,348 cases, the only cases that could directly be associated to someone identified as a backpacker based on this data 
was one in Alaska and one in Washington State. Now, this study acknowledges the difficulties with the lack of standardized reporting and the potential underreporting from healthcare providers. Data collection in the 1991 was much more of a manual process than it is now, with electronic medical records and ICD-9 and ICD now ICD-10 codes. It's much easier to mine data and send that automatically to the state health departments. This report actually references the Zell and Sorensen report as a supporting the logic for the low risk of Iardia, but acknowledges the 16.7% incident of gastrointestinal issues experienced by the Zell and Sorensen subjects that were outside of the Giardia infections. The Welch and Welch report states in their discussion, and I quote, Giardiasis and similar enteric illnesses in developed nations are overwhelmingly spread by direct fecal-oral or foodborne transmission, not by contaminated drinking water. Given the casual approach to personal hygiene that characterizes most backpacking treks, hand-washing is likely to be much more useful preventive strategy than water disinfection. This simple expedient, strictly enforced in the healthcare, childcare, and food service settings, is rarely mentioned in wilderness education materials. Now, I've camped a fair bit, and while there's no doubt that the fecal-oral and foodborne routes of transmission are the primary vectors for enteric illnesses worldwide, this statement made me pause. Now, while there is a chance that a subject became ill due to poor hygiene and poor food safety, if they were infected with a waterborne pathogen that is atypical in their normal surroundings, just exactly where did that pathogen arise from? There are, obviously, people walking around us that have probably asymptomatic Giardia right now. But the number is very low. And the chances of you going on a backpacking trip with said person and then coming into contact through the oral fecal route or through a food contamination route with that person is even lower. Whereas while we have it in the stream, then it is possible that you could come up with an infection from there. I'm not saying to not wash your hands. I'm a firm believer in that, and I think we've discussed that frequently, especially if you want to go back to an earlier episode where Ty discusses his problems with a non-hand washer at his local gym. But I'm not saying that patient-to-patient contact is the primary vector for these illnesses. Again, the Welch and Welch study is focused purely on Giardia infections. It likens Giardia infections to the fear that's been instilled upon us about shark attacks. Unlikely to happen, but there's always a slight chance. But people worry about it too much as their main uh, focus. The next study was an analysis of metadata, which was also done by Timothy Welch, who co-wrote the previous study. This was entitled, Risk of Giardiasis from Consumption of Wilderness Water in North America, a Systematic Review of Epidemiologic Data. So, What we're going on here is he's going to look at a whole bunch of other academic papers and then extrapolate that data to give us a concise view based upon the lay of the land. Yet again, this study was laser-focused on Chiardia and was ignoring enteric bacteria and viruses that might also come into play. The study started with a possible 104 journal articles that involved Chiardia and Through the selection criteria, it was whittled down to, get ready, just nine that qualified for inclusion in the study. Several of these studies included 
did not find a statistical correlation between the direct backcountry water consumption at all. But there were studies that did find a higher risk. The Shute study in Vermont of 171 Giardiasis patients identified a positive yet unstable risk for patients that had been camping, but the study didn't address water ingestion directly. Welch notes that the Isaac Renton and Fillion study had 228 respondents that were interviewed, and the authors concluded that the consumption of local water while participating in outdoor activities, such as camping, was associated with a much higher risk of giardiasis than in controls who participated in such activities, but did not drink the local water. Since Welch is the author of the metadata study and the co-author of the health department study, it's not surprising that his takeaway is still focused on hygiene. In his conclusion, he states, and I quote, Published reports of confirmed giardiasis among outdoor recreationists clearly demonstrate a high incidence among the population. However, the evidence for an association between drinking backcountry water and acquiring giardiasis is minimal. Education efforts aimed at outdoor recreationists should place more emphasis on hand washing than on water purification. Further studies should attempt to separate the specific risk factor of drinking water from backcountry sources from other behaviors among this group that may contribute to the risk. I just can't help myself but go back to the unless the patients were infected from another camper who was also infected with giardia and transmitted through poor hygiene, sexual contact, or food contamination. Just where in the world did the giardia originate from? Obviously, the giardia had to come from somewhere, and that somewhere has to be the local environment. One of the problems with academia and statistics is sometimes it doesn't operate on common sense. Sometimes they get so down into the weeds and the statistics, again, from their sample sizes, that they don't see the forest for the trees. Now, those studies, however, were still aimed at Giardia alone, and I have no problem with the actual studies. Now, those studies were just aimed at Giardia, and I do recognize that there's probably more concern about Giardia than there is actual risk of coming down with a case of it. But the risk is there. But it's the next study that really got me going and how it was used by Ethan to make a very dangerous and short-sighted statement, in my opinion. The study is called An Analysis of Wilderness Water in Kings Canyon, Sequoia, and Yosemite National Parks for Coliform and Pathologic Bacteria by Derlitt and Carlson. In the Slate article, Ethan states, and I quote, In fact, it's unclear that dangerous protozoans and bacteria occur in very many of North America's wilderness streams and lakes at all. And where they are present, they are usually found far below levels that should concern humans. He then goes on to cite the Derlitt and Carlson report to back up his statement. And I quote, Those studies have confirmed the presence of fecal coliform bacteria near sites with heavy human or pack animal traffic they occurred only at a minority of sampled areas, and mostly at concentrations so low they were barely detectable. Now, the problem with making such a sweeping statement that, quote, it's unclear that dangerous protozoans and bacteria occur in very many natural North America's wilderness streams and lakes at all, end quote, is that we don't have widespread data to back up that claim. The Derlitt and Carlson study was limited to 55 sample sites located in Kings Canyon, the Sequoia, and the Yosemite National Parks. Twelve of these sites were actually sampled twice, while 43 were only sampled once. 
Now, for the sites that were sampled twice, there was early season and late season during the summer. Water was cultured and incubated on a variety of different media that support different types of bacteria in order to identify the specific species of bacteria present in the samples. Out of the 55 sites, 22 of the sites tested positive for E. coli. Now, we've all heard of E. coli, right? While Derlitt and Carlson note most sites didn't have E. coli contamination, that is still 40% of the samples which were positive for E. coli. 40%. They hypothesized that of those 22 sites, the contamination may be from other hikers, livestock, birds, or other animals in the area. And these were not just standing pools of water. These were actual streams as well. Running water, which old wisdom was that it's safe to drink from running water, but we know differently now. So no matter how the E. coli got there and where it came from, it was in 40 freaking percent of the samples. If I told you you had a 40% chance of drinking E. coli, if you drank 100 different bottles of water, but 40 of them were going to have E. coli, would you take that risk? And I would also point out that not all of us are so lucky to be traipsing through the beautiful and mostly pristine Sierra Nevada high country. I would love to see samples from beaver ponds in Ontario, creeks in the Ozark, or lakes in the Dakotas, or lakes in Minnesota. Now, the good news is Derlitt and Carlson did not identify any other pathogenic coliform bacterial species in their samples. Now, they were classifying coliform bacteria as bacteria that are gram-negative, non-spore-forming, rod-shaped bacteria that ferment lactose when incubated at 35 degrees Celsius. So, basically, they're looking for your E. coli's, your Klebsiella species, or your Enterobacter species. But, again, the good news they only came up with E. coli, only in 40% of the sites. Of course, being raw, untreated water, they also cultured out 22 other non-pathogenic species in total, including various Pseudomonas and Yersinia species. Now, I want to take a moment to point out that they classify these as non-pathogenic, which, under optimal circumstances for a healthy person, they probably wouldn't cause any problem. But... And we'll talk about this later. For people with a compromised or a weak immune system, non-pathogenic bacteria can sometimes turn pathogenic. The use of the Derlitt and Carlson study to say that it's unclear that dangerous protozoans and bacteria occur in very many of North America's wilderness streams and lakes at all, end quote, really gets my goat. A small sample size from high alpine sites doesn't correlate with the backcountry water samples from the rest of the country or the continent in general. Okay, so I've torn apart his use of these articles to support. And the next article he uses, I will not. Because I'll be honest, it was behind a paywall, and by this time, I'd seen enough to know that he was citing limited studies to make, in his eyes, statistically valid reasons not to use evil water filters. This guy's clearly got an issue with big water filter and the privilege of white campers. And this quote made me laugh out loud. This is from Ethan's Slate article. And I quote, How then did water treatment become the norm? Because the outdoor recreation community is far wider, wealthier, and better educated than the U.S. population at large. 
It's an interesting case study in how misinformation propagates through privileged communities. Asking two friends with different recreation backgrounds about their habits suggests educational programs play a significant role. End quote. I don't even know where to start with that quote. I'm not sure what being white and privileged has to do with waterborne pathogens. But I do know something about relative health and how waterborne pathogens affect people with less than stellar immune systems. What might not bother a person with a healthy immune system may very well cause a serious issue for vulnerable subpopulations with less robust immune systems, such as small children, the elderly, patients on certain medications that suppress your immune functionality, and patients with HIV. In the Slate article, he calls out white privilege, but maybe he should focus just on health privilege instead. See what I did there? To his credit, after he's done plenty of damage with dangerous rhetoric, Ethan tells the reader that it's okay if they want to continue to treat their water. And I quote, As a personal choice, that's fine. Perhaps even commendable. But life is a triage. A constant series of negotiations between risks of varying severity. And how we talk about those risks matters. If the real danger comes from eating after a trip to the cat hole, then that's the point that should be emphasized. Not an unsubstantiated view of all water in the mountains is suspect. In all likelihood, it's not the water that's gross. It's you. End quote. I do agree that hygiene is important in the backcountry, just as it is in normal civilization. But treated water is a foundation of civilization. There are poor people in underprivileged countries around the world that are literally dying because they don't have treated water. And they are dying of waterborne pathogens. But because some guy that's young and healthy and probably privileged by his standards is able to go backpacking through Washington State and Northern California and Oregon and drink from whatever stream he wants without having suffered doesn't mean it's not a good idea to filter your water. Now that I've spent so much time picking apart his articles that support his uh, questionable stance, let's take a minute to talk about the common waterborne pathogens that are in the U.S. and Canada. I want to apologize to our international listeners or our world travelers because I'm just going to focus on what occurs pretty much in the U.S. and Canada. The world is full of fascinating parasites and other bacteria, and I'll stick to what is relatively common just in the states and our neighbors to the north. If you ever get curious about parasitology, I highly suggest you go to maybe a university and see if you can find a parasitology textbook, which were typically written by Japanese doctors because they had the most insight into the Asian parasites, although there are some fascinating parasites in Africa as well, but that's a maybe an episode for a different day. I promise you we'd come back to the actual parasites, and since Ethan focused so much on Giardia at the start, let's talk about it first. Giardia lamblia is a parasitic flagellate protozoan organism. It starts its life cycle as a dormant cyst, which can survive heat, cold, drying out, and being in water for a long period of time. Once it's been ingested, either through drinking, fecal-oral contamination, food contamination, or, in some cases, uh, and I guess it falls into fecal-oral sexual intercourse, that's when the organism actually becomes active. And it the cyst opens up, 
the organism splits and it latches on to the cells that are in the lining of the small intestine. And then it keeps on replicating, making more and more happy faced, which is what it looks like under a microscope when you look at it. These little organisms with these little uh, flagella wiggling around. And it basically feeds on its host. In some cases, which was noted in some of the studies, the host is asymptomatic. They don't show any problem. But if you got their stool and you put it in the formalin and you did the well and parasite exam, you would find those cysts under the microscope when you looked. But in many of the others, Giardia lamblia causes giardiasis, which is just the name of the infection. A popular name for giardiasis is beaver fever. Now, if my co-host were with me, we would be making plenty of jokes, I assure you. But for now, I'll just let that slide and we'll stay mostly professional. The common symptoms of giardiasis are diarrhea, weight loss, and intense abdominal cramping. Less common symptoms are vomiting, bloody stool, and fever. A few years ago, I have a friend who's a big duck hunter. He lives up in uh, Michigan. And he'd been on a duck hunting trip to the Dakotas and got Giardia from contaminated well water at the place that they were staying. Now, that second study that was looking at state health department, the overwhelming number of their cases actually did involve local water supplies that had been contaminated either by livestock, beaver, birds, whatever have you. But these were usually surface water or sometimes wells that had been contaminated by runoff. And my buddy was in a pickle. It was some of the worst weeks of his life, and he felt like he was going to literally die from the constant diarrhea. Luckily, he was a relatively healthy person. So with a course of flagell and uh, some rest, he recovered. But it was so severe, you could see how someone in less good health, it could have been very dangerous and possibly could have led to death. Another fun protozoa out there is Cryptosporidium. Yet again, another fecal contaminant. And the water sources can be contaminated by the dormant cysts, just like Giardia, and ingested just like Giardia, either by drinking or by the fecal-oral route. Once in the GI tract, they settle down in the small intestine, just like Giardia, and cause what we call Cryptosporidiosis. The crypto causes watery diarrhea, and both people with normal immune systems and the immunocompromised. And like giardiasis, the cryptosporidiosis symptoms include the aforementioned watery diarrhea, cramping, fever, weight loss, and fatigue. But for the immunocompromised, the infection can actually spread through the body and cause a host of other issues and possibly be fatal. I think most of our listeners range somewhere from their early 20s into their late 40s. I myself am about 43, and I remember playing the earliest versions of Oregon Trail on an Apple II at school. And one of the things that always happened to you was, oops, you're dead because you got dysentery. Well, that's real. It's not just some old term, although it is old, but it's a very real problem, and it's a problem for a lot of people in the underdeveloped nations. Dysentery is pretty much an all-encompassing term for any inflammatory bowel infection that results in bloody diarrhea. And while it can be caused by 
viruses, parasitic worms, protozoas, and bacteria. In the U.S. and Canada, it's mostly caused by the bacteria Shigella or an amoebic parasite. Now, that amoebic parasite is Entamoeba histolytica. Now, in the U.S., we don't have a whole lot to worry about this parasite. It is out there, and it's responsible for just under 3,000 or so cases a year, according to the CDC. So by Ethan's statistical standpoint, that's nothing, right? But again, to my view, why risk it? Shigella, on the other hand, is responsible for, and this is the entire population of the United States, about a half a million cases a year in the U.S. alone. Now, obviously, like I said, this isn't a half a million backpackers, but it is another very common, very problematic, pathogenic bacteria that, through fecal contamination, is transmitted by people and animals. And, of course, there is a strain of E. coli that can specifically cause bloody diarrhea as well, which I guess you could classify as a type of dysentery by these criteria. If we're mentioning bacteria, and we are, we need to also add on Campylobacter and Salmonella, which both can give you watery diarrhea. Are you guys seeing a pattern here? I know I am. And in the case of Salmonella, can lead to typhoid fever. Now, typhus, typhoid fever, that always seemed to be a big player in those Russian century, uh, 19th century novels I used to read when I was growing up. You know, your Tolstoy and your Dostoevsky and later on Pasternak. Somebody's always got typhus. Well, there you go. But wait, we haven't even touched on waterborne viruses, have we? Okay, I got a little excited for that. Probably not as much need to. I'll admit that the viral contamination in the U.S. and Canada is much less likely, but it's still possible due to animal or human fecal contamination of the water source. All of this goes back to you never know who or what is taking a poop upstream that's flowing down to your spot that you're collecting water, or, even worse, what may be floating dead just beneath the surface of that lovely lake that you're dipping your Nalgene bottle into. Viruses like the enterovirus, norovirus, hepatitis A, and rotavirus can all cause diarrhea, vomiting, and cramping. But in extreme cases, for hepatitis A virus, it can lead to full-blown hepatitis for you, And in the cases of uh, viruses like the enterovirus, the norovirus, hepatitis A virus, and the rotavirus can cause diarrhea, vomiting, cramping, and in extreme cases lead to full-blown hepatitis or viral meningitis. You don't want either of those, okay? So to sum all of this up, I'm going to go on record and say I'm not a fan of watery, painful diarrhea. And I'm also not a fan of risking my own health or the health of my companions when camping. Therefore, I'm going to ignore the advice of an ill-conceived article in Slate that suggests that I just trust the statistics from a few limited studies, and I probably won't get a belly full of contaminated water when I'm drinking from a backcountry water source. So for me, your friend Gustav Montebon, treating the water is cheaper and much easier than almost crapping myself to death. So, to sum it up, Treat your water, people, and don't take anything you read on the internet from some jack wagon writing articles for Slate as the gospel. Go do the research online like we did. 
All right. Well, next week we'll be back with uh, at least somebody other than me. So come back, join us again, and I guess we'll talk to you later. Adios. Bye. Now, how do you feel about drinking that water? Not so good, huh? Well, let's take a look upstream and see what gives that stuff its kick. See, Mac? Here's you. Here's the gorilla. A few dead jeeps. Some pigs. And a native village. What's wrong with a native village? Very pretty, very pretty. But, uh, do you know what that is? That, McGillicuddy, is a headhunter's head. Direct from the manufacturer to the consumer. A prize in every package. And brother, you hit the jackpot. So he hid it. One place he knew he could hide something, his ass. Five long years he wore this watch, up his ass. Then he died of dysentery. He gave me the watch. I hid this uncomfortable hunk of metal up my ass two years. Then after seven years, I was sent home to my family. And now, little man, I give the watch to you. And world-class championship wrestling, I'm Bill Mercer with Jay Saldy. Good night from Dallas, Texas. <laughs>